Now we've been reading various passages and the events that have been going on in our culture. All of these things, they're producing in us this great desire for Christ to return. Now the passage that David, David Cooper read to us from Micah chapter 5. This is one of the most famous prophecies in all of the scriptures. It's a passage through which God has a lot to say to us today. At this moment in our lives. At this moment in our culture. And, and in this place. The valley. Harrisonburg. Where we live. Now as we celebrate the birth of Christ. And long for his returning. I think it's good that we listen close for the voice of God through Micah chapter 5. Look with me there if you have your Bible. Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now Micah, who spoke in This prophecy is recorded from him. He lived and wrote in the 8th century before Christ. This was one of the most traumatic periods in the history of the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was filled with brokenness and conflict on two levels. First of all, internally. The nation of Israel at this point in time was very religious. Its temple was filled with worshipers. And for their worship, they offered lavish gifts to God. But look at Micah chapter 3 verse 1. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Hear this. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice And make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now this is a gruesome depiction. The leaders of Israel who packed the temple every week for worship. Who offered extravagant gifts in worship to God. Micah says, you know what your real sacrifices are? They're not these things you bring to the temple. The real sacrifices you are making are the very people that you're supposed to be governing. They were slaughtering the people. They were stripping their skin and chopping them up to cook them. They twist justice. The reality is they were building a thriving culture on blood. Not physically. Now, you see, the violence that Micah is talking about is not a physical violence. Turn, if you have your Bible, to chapter 6 and look at verse 10. 
Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The violence he's talking about is cheating in the marketplace. Cheating in business, Micah is saying, is not just a crime against property. It is a crime against people. It is an act of violence. Now, God had set up a check and balance system for this very scenario. God had organized Israel to be structured in such a way that the political leaders were accountable to the religious leaders. He had given Israel preachers and priests and prophets who were supposed to confront the leadership when it descended into acts of injustice. The leaders, they were supposed to insist that the the political leaders, the religious leaders were supposed to insist that the political leaders lived by the ethical standards God had set up. But look at chapter 3, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouth. They were prophets for hire. They would sanction whatever you were doing if they were on your payroll. And if you didn't have anything to offer them by way of finances... They would preach against you. Judges take bribes. Priests teach what they are paid to teach. Prophets will reassure Israel for cash. Look at verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. As a result, the entire nation is infected with moral rot, corruption, and cynicism. Now, that's the internal conflict of Micah's day. The external conflict was no less powerful. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was on the rise. Indeed, by the end of the century, Israel would fall to Assyria. Jerusalem would be razed to the ground. And her leaders either slaughtered or hauled off in exile. When Micah was saying the words that we're going to look at in chapter 5, it was a time of incredible insecurity. Now, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, we are listening to Micah chapter 5 to hear the voice of the living God to us today. We're reading this in a standpoint after the prophecy has been fulfilled and Christ has already been born in Bethlehem. But we're reading this before he has returned and finished his work of making all things new. So when we read in Micah chapter 5, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. We, in many ways, are like Israel. We too are in conflict. Now, the Assyrian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and many, many more since them have come and gone. They've fallen away. 
But we are still in the same basic conflict. And the conflict I'm talking about is a spiritual conflict that cuts across all of life. It's a running encounter between two opposing forces, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Now we see the, this picture of reality throughout the Bible. For example, listen to this passage from the New Testament. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. There's a fundamental opposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. It is a very real spiritual warfare between good and evil. And here's the important point. It's what we see when we look at the conflict in in Micah's day in Israel. It's what we see when we look at our own culture today. The battle between good and evil, here's the key. It knows no territorial boundaries. Now what I mean by that is that this fundamental spiritual conflict is a conflict between two regimes, not two places, not two realms. It runs through every department of human life. There is a battle between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness and it cuts through everything. Our personal lives, our family lives, the art community, politics, education, medicine, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party. It cuts through technology and medicine and recreation and construction and city planning and business. There is a fundamental spiritual conflict that runs right through the heart of every aspect of human life. But there's more. It not only runs right through the heart of every facet of our lives, it runs right through the heart of each of us. Now, it's true that you're either a Christian or you're not, but what we're looking at here is a spiritual battle that knows no territorial boundaries, not even the boundary of the Christian and the non-Christian. And this battle, it occurs in the life of every one of us. If you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, you still know that even when a person is a Christian, there remains a thoroughly sinful creature in that body. Christians can be just as limited and short-sighted as non-Christians. There's a battle going on. It's in the deepest level in every sphere of our society and it is in your heart and it is in mine and it is a struggle between an inclination to submit to the kingdom of God or to rebel against God and his kingdom. This is a personal battle. It's a private battle. It's a public battle. It's a corporate battle. And it is a battle that is real in our world today, every bit as much as it was in Micah's world. Don't think of this conflict as being only about some spiritual realm. You've got to learn to see it as the fundamental reality at the heart of every aspect of your life. 
whether it's a decision about business or what to wear or how to fit in, when you do not pick God's way, you are picking the kingdom of darkness. And when you fail to see this issue clearly, you are in danger of binding yourself to the kingdom of death. There is a way of living that is futile. It will not work. It will not lead to life. That's the reality of Micah 5.1. But look at the hope of Micah 5.2. Look at the hope of verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to his people. If we were to take the time to read chapter 3 closely, we would see that Micah accurately prophesied the utter destruction of Jerusalem. If we were to take the time to read chapter 4 carefully, we would see that Micah accurately prophesied that Israel would be deported. And here in chapter 5, we see that there would be a delay until the child was born. But when the child was born, peace and deliverance would be made available. And that child was Jesus. Born 700 years later, and tomorrow at sundown, we begin a 12-day celebration of that miracle. And I hope you'll pull out all the stops. I hope you've been spending time getting ready. I hope you use eggnog and fudge and wine and turkey and presents and wrapping paper. I hope at your house it's an extravagant, huge, break the bank kind of feast. Why? Because our peace and our deliverance, our King Jesus was born. If there was ever a time to go overboard, Christmas is it. And, and look, in all the craziness of our culture, there's still a truth. This is the right time of the year to go crazy. This is the right time of the year to pull out all the stops and to wear ugly... Sw- Did you see the sweater Jeremy had on last night? <laughs> Only Christmas could justify that thing. <laughs> Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes the extravagant feast that awaits us when Christ returns and makes all things new. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, that veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is what we're preparing for. This is what tomorrow is just the first course of. We're starting 
Tomorrow night we're throwing parties to celebrate the birth of Christ in the anticipation of his return when he completes his work. For 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas, go for it. This is no glass of room temperature water and a cracker kind of party. No, this is an Anglican party. (laughs) Because Jesus was born, all things will be made new. The resurrection will come. We have the down payment for that in the resurrection of Jesus. Death will be swallowed up in victory. The Lord will wipe away every tear you've ever shed from your life. Everything will be made true and good and beautiful. As people who've accepted this gospel, we have accepted all of this as being established in the birth and life of Christ and in his resurrection. And we live this in faith. And we need to learn how to proclaim this, not only in our words, but in our lives. And what I mean there is not only that our words need to be true and our behavior good, I mean that our words should sound like good news and our lives should smell like good news. Now that's Micah 5, 2 and 3. Now look at Micah 4, 5 verse 4. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The whole world belongs to God. At the same time, we live in this in-between moment, between his birth and life, and death, and resurrection, ascension, between that and his return. And in this in-between moment, all of reality is under the curse of sin. We are still in conflict. Our world is still broken. Our hearts are still divided. And yet all of reality lies within the range of the redemption of Christ. Look at that verse, to the ends of the earth. That's about more than geography. It's about all of reality. The gospel is the healing power that redirects all of fallen creation in line with God's original plan, with his original good news. The creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son, And recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Being a Christian is about far more than the affirmation of a few things you believe. It's about more than personal piety. It's about more than going to heaven when you die. Being a Christian is a way of life based on the conviction that Jesus is king. You see that last verse? He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Being a Christian is about the conviction that that's about more than geography. It's about every square inch of your life. Look, too many Christians view the growth of the Christian life as a journey out of the natural world into some spiritual world that has nothing to do with your ordinary life and your work and your daily calling, your vocation. But the greatness of Christ to the ends of the earth is the kingship of Jesus over all of life. 
Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not rightly cry, mine. Fashion, mine. Food, mine. Government, mine. Every aspect of your life, mine. It all belongs to King Jesus. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. It means nothing is outside of his sovereignty. See, we've got to ask ourselves over and over, what does Christ have to say about this area of my life? What does Christ and his kingship have to do with my work? What does it have to do with my personal life? What does it have to do with my recreational life? What does it have to do with every aspect of my life? We've got to ask this over and over. This is crucial for what it means to follow the king. It's a fundamental reason that we work so hard at our church to resist the ghettoizing of Christianity. It's a massive mistake to think that becoming a disciple of Christ is to become removed from the world. According to this line of thinking, discipleship is about how you study the Bible and how you pray and evangelize and overcome temptation and forgive and practice fellowship with other believers and how you serve in the church. Now, all of that's important, but it fails to come to terms with what it means to live Christianly in society, at work, in art, in media, in the marketplace, in education, in politics, in business. You cannot point to anything that is not related to the cross and the resurrection of Christ. There's nothing that he doesn't care about. And I don't mean in some tangential, indirect way. All of reality has its origin and its goal in Christ. For this reason, it is totally false to restrict Christ to your spiritual affairs. To assert that there is no point of contact between Christ and science. Or Christ and you pick the category. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now look at verse 5. And he shall be their peace. And down in the middle of verse 6. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. Now, we need to be very careful here. You see, as a church, we must train ourselves to turn our face to the world, to the culture, to the society. But as we are doing this as a church, it would be a massive mistake to place so heavy of an emphasis on the work of Christ in culture that we neglect the work of Christ in our own hearts. In our own character. He shall be their peace. Learning how to live under the lordship of Christ. Where you work. Involves spiritual warfare. Taking up the cross. Learning how to live under the lordship of Christ. In your own personal life. Involves spiritual warfare. Taking up the cross. If we're going to go this route as a church. And we're going to seek to embody and embrace King Jesus, and to, and to plant stakes in the ground wherever we go, planting flags. King Jesus owns this. If we intend to do this, then we must be aware that there's a battle. 
And it will place us on the front lines of that battle. And that is an unsafe place to be. And we must be sure that we have adequate resources for that journey. He shall be their peace. He shall deliver them from Assyria. Shortly before Janelle and I and Spencer, she was the only child we had at the time, moved to Cheltenham, England, a young Christian doctor had come and spoken in our town, Cheltenham. She had gone to serve in Chile um, as a medical missionary of sorts. And she made the mistake of treating a government opponent. She was arrested, gruesomely, brutally tortured, and violated in the ways that you can imagine. When she was speaking in Cheltenham, she made the point, we need a relationship with God that provides the resources adequate for the battle. There is a huge danger if our social activism is formed on the presumption that God's work in the world is disconnected from the deeper work in the interior spaces of our hearts and our character. You see, our journey where we labor for the glory and goodness of God in every sphere of our culture, this outward journey must be accompanied by a deep, intentional inward journey. Because this outward journey will bring us over and over to Gethsemane and Golgotha. And we must be prepared. And you must be prepared. None of us are adequate to this task without a spirituality that takes us deep into Christ so that Christ is formed on the inside of us. Because all of the stuff you think you're getting away with will be shown for what it really is in Gethsemane and at Golgotha. It is an urgent matter for us to attend deeply to the interior journey that Christ calls us on. At the same time that we as a church follow Christ into every square inch of his creation. Embracing and embodying the reign of Christ in our community, in our own hearts, it's exhilarating. It's exhilarating to imagine what we're going to get to be a part of together in the years ahead. But it's not going to be easy. There is so much work to be done. There is so much to pray about. May we rise to the challenge. And may we do this as we embrace Jesus, the once and future King, and learn to live out of the hope of his glory. Let's pray.